law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Welcome everyone to episode 116 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, April 12th, and I'm your host, Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete. It's me, Allison Gill, your friend. Hey, Allison. Hey, we have a lot to cover today, <laughs> including a motion to get the jurors' names in the E. Jean Carroll case, just for the legal teams. It's been denied by Judge Kaplan. We have a weird field trip that Jim Jordan and the they want to take uh, to New York. <laughs> it's just an idiot. And we have Alvin Bragg's fiery response, and the split decision in the appellate court decision that upholds the use of 1512c2 obstructing an official proceeding. But first, I want to thank our new patrons. Y'all make this show possible. So thanks to Grateful, Bonnie Bank Rosenberg, Adam Goldberg, Thrive, Wim Webster, Annalim18, Ryan Corning, Patrick Caney, Jared Young, Aaron Greller, W. Curtis Preston, aka Mr. Backup, Cindy, Christy, the SVR mole in the MSW media office. <laughs> Hashtag glad to be here. <laughs> Ellen Forty, Kate B, Hannah Strauss, P. Andre, Deocar Langell, Sandy B, Matt Taylor, Ghost Dog, and Becky Simer. Remember, you can be a patron for as little as a dollar an episode. And if you pledge $2 per episode, you get the free bonus weekend episode from me and Pete. And whatever, whatever level you pledge at, uh, we have to read whatever you call yourself <laughs> on the show. So you can sign up over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. All right, Pete, what do we got for today? Great. Let's dive in. So first up, we've got an appellate court ruling on the one judge, Judge Nichols, that dismissed charges saying that obstructing an official proceeding statute does not apply to the January 6th rioters. Judge Nichols dismissed charges of rioters violating Title 18, Section 1512C2 because he believes the word otherwise in C2 connects the elements of that subsection to those in C1. Nearly a dozen other judges disagree, I mean unanimously other than him, and Nichols is the only judge who ruled that the statute doesn't apply. So DOJ appealed, and now we have that decision from a, a three-judge uh, panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the statute is not ambiguous and that C-2 is not dependent on C-1. From the recent ruling, quote, the district court granted each appellee's motion to dismiss. After carefully reviewing the text and structure of the statute, the district court concluded that Section 1512C is ambiguous with respect to how subsection C-2 relates to subsection C-1. Although subsection C-1 concerns obstructive conduct involving, quote, a record, document, or other object, and the words of subsection C-2 more generally address, quote, obstructing, influencing, or impeding any official proceeding or attempting to do so, 
the district court focused on the meaning of the word otherwise that connects the two provisions. The DC <laughs> yeah. Circuit Court of Yeah, it it it's I, I think, you know, for the good news in this is that, you know, to the extent that Nichols stood out, he no longer stands out. I mean, this is a pretty clear, you know, ruling that won't get the district court judges all aligned, which is good news for the various cases, the January 6th cases moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And they they go on to to say that the government, DOJ, asserts that the word corruptly obstructs, influences, and impedes any official proceeding in the statute, uh, have broad meaning that encompasses all forms of obstructive conduct, including appellees' allegedly violent efforts to stop Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election. Thus, the government contends the district court erred when it adopted an unduly narrow interpretation of 1512c2 that limits the statute's application to obstructive conduct with respect to a document, record, or other object. So the way that this this statute is is worded is, is you know, in, in C1, they say, with respect to a document, record, or other, other object, or otherwise, kind of all these other ways to obstruct or impede an official proceeding. And And what the court is saying here, right, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is, no, it doesn't restrict subsection C2. It actually just expands it. It just says, look, we can't think of all the possible ways somebody might corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. So section two is sort of a catch-all for the things we didn't put out in section one. And it kind of reminds me of the people who say that if your rights aren't enumerated in the first, you know, 10, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights, that they aren't covered by the Constitution. And in the Federalist Papers, the founders were like, we're worried that if we enumerate these rights, people will think they're the only ones that are covered by this Constitution. They aren't, you know, and they they specifically uh, say that, you know, just because we have one through 10 here doesn't mean that privacy isn't covered or abortion isn't covered, you know, and that's why there's always the argument, oh, I don't see the word abortion in the Bill of Rights anywhere, you know, uh, but I see guns. And so, you know, it's it's like that wasn't the intention by by numbering these rights and listing these rights. They weren't saying these are the only ones. And that's sort of what this particular judge was saying about 1512 uh, and, and that particular statute. And of course, this is important for uh, not only every single January 6th case that's been charged with obstruction of justice in the past or obstructing an official proceeding in the past, but future cases, the Proud Boys right now are on trial for obstructing an official proceeding as one of their counts. And two of them have already filed a thing saying one of the judges in this appellate court disagrees. So we, we should get to go home, uh, even though dissenting opinions in appellate court rulings do not set precedent. They don't they aren't the it's not the decision. Um, that's why there's three of them. And that's why you win two to one. Um, and so, but you can have your dissenting opinion. It just doesn't really have an impact, but this also could impact, uh, Jack Smith, right? And, and if he wants to charge Donald Trump, say, with obstructing an official proceeding and whether or not that matters. And I don't think it does. Uh, some people think it makes it harder for him. Some people think it, I think it, I'm in camp. It makes it easy for him because now we don't have this outlying judge saying that this statute is ambiguous. Um, now, SCOTUS could rule differently, uh, but, you know, we could talk about that in a minute because they do talk about corrupt intent, what corrupt intent means, and what an official proceeding is. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the crux of the matter. And that's the corrupt intent is, you know, this ruling isn't all good news, in my opinion. This ruling certainly gets 
the district court aligned on the fact of obstructing an official proceeding certainly falls within the 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 scope of the statute but they spent a lot of time talking about what corrupt intent entails i think and and we can talk about that in a little bit um it it, it i think it has an impact on the lower level people people are just you know dragged into the moment and suddenly found themselves in the capital they didn't address, and in some in some ways, you know, the people who were also charged with assaulting federal officer, engaging in violent crime, clearly they didn't see that corrupt intent as an issue. But there is an issue on the one hand of people who may have just claimed to have been swept up in the moment and that they believed that this was a stolen election and they believed what Trump was telling them. And then certainly when it comes to Trump, it's what you see, I mean, in, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves and what you see Jack Smith doing is bringing in all these witnesses who can tell the grand jury Look, Trump knew this was illegal. Trump knew that he wasn't supposed to do it. Trump knew that this was, you know, not supposed to happen and he needed to prevent it. And what you're doing there is building a demonstration that, you know, we're assuming this because none of us are in the grand jury, building the idea that Trump knew that it was wrong and did it anyway. And that's how you get to the corrupt intent. And I remember that was a huge, you know, issue certainly on the with with special counsel Mueller trying to show you know, it's one thing to believe it to be the case, but how do you get evidence? How do you get testimony? People saying that, well, they knew that potentially, you know, the things, the emails the Russians were releasing were a thing of value when it came to campaign finance violations. I mean, knowing that knowingness, that intent was really hard. And especially too, when you get to, you know, without getting into a lot of detail, other people around Trump showing that they knew something was against the law that you have to prove for a lot of these cases. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, they, the court highlighted that, like, look, quote, in our view, the meaning of the statute is unambiguous. Subsection 1C or C1 contains a specific prohibition against corruptly tampering with a record, document, or other object to impair or prevent its use in an official proceeding, while subsection C2 prescribes corrupt conduct that otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so. Under the most natural reading of the statute, 1512C2 applies to all forms of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding other than the conduct that is already covered by 1512C1. So, you know, you, to your, your question and your assertion, that's absolutely right. I mean, they're saying, look, just because it doesn't, isn't enumerated out, this this applies to all of of these different corrupt forms of corrupt obstruction and there shouldn't be some parsing out of what is or isn't in there. And, you know, and they, they kind of conclude that section by saying the latter subsection is a quote unquote catch-all that covers otherwise obstructive behavior that might not constitute a more specific offense involving documents, records, or objects under 1512C1. Yeah. It's basically like a document, record, or whatever, or any something we haven't thought of, <laughs> you know, like all other, uh, but it has to be corrupt, right? They say, although the text plainly extends to a wide range of conduct, the statute contains some important limitations. The act of obstructing, influencing, and impeding described in subsection C2 must be accompanied by corrupt intent, like you said, and the behavior must target an official proceeding. Those other elements of the subsection C2, they're not the focus of this appeal, but nevertheless, we note that they provide significant guardrails for prosecutions brought under the statute. And like you said, with Mueller and I mean, but I think my point here is that this ruling does not change the definition of corrupt intent or an official proceeding. And Jack Smith would have to prove corrupt intent and that this was an official proceeding anyways, regardless of, of whether 
this particular uh, court determined that C1 and C2 were somehow connected or not? You know, what, what defines what a corrupt or not a corrupt act, but what defines what an obstructive act is? And so Jack was always going to have to prove corrupt intent. And I don't see anything in this ruling that changes the definition of corrupt intent. It just sort of outlines it. And, and it does say how these two particular defendants, um, you know, fall into that category and that this is an official proceeding. And nobody has, uh, not even Judge Nichols has said that this wasn't an official proceeding. So that's not even in question, right? So I don't think that this personally makes Jack's job any more difficult because he would have had to prove corrupt intent and that this was an official proceeding anyhow. He, he already had to do that. Right. But it's what's interesting is that so you have all three, you know, Judge uh, Pan, who uh, is a, a Democratic appointee, Judge Katsis and Walker, who were um, Trump appointees, all expressed some concern about corrupt intent. And they pointed to like where you, you this all of this bumps up into the First Amendment at some point. They drew the, you know, the kind of parallel or, or the example of what happens if somebody shows up on the floor during, you know, debate over a bill and you get protesters who hold up signs and disrupt the proceedings because they disagree with whatever the particular um, bill that's, you know, at issue or being debated or about to be voted on? How are you opening them up to 20-year obstruction charges if a lobbyist is, you know, paid to go down and lobby on behalf of some sort of bill that is being advanced through Congress and has some concern about whether or not it's appropriate or not? Is that behavior a 20-year, you know, felony or not? And so this was a, in the ruling, and part of the reason I have a little bit of pause here and a little bit of concern, there was, you know, again, judges aren't supposed to be partisan, but certainly when you see both Republican and Democratic nominated judges on the DC circuit expressing some concerns about how far corrupt intent is or isn't protected against first amendment advocacy it causes me some concern that depending on how and they they essentially put off they said for a lot of these issues this isn't the right case because the particular case that this was arguing the defendant had assaulted if i recall correctly either a Capitol Police or a Metropolitan Police Officer. So there, there was that aggravating circumstance, right? He, he was assaulting a, a law enforcement officer. There's another case that's coming on the document where that isn't present, where it is simply a standalone charge. And the, the, the panel essentially said, this issue of corrupt intent isn't ripe at this case, but you know, essentially there's this other case coming down the pike where it may be more appropriate to address it in more detail. And I'm not convinced that this is going to go... I. I can see it, in my opinion, reading this, that it might present problems. It might sort of keep the hurdle at a high level or make it make it challenging. So it doesn't mean it's not insurmountable. It doesn't mean Jack Smith won't get there. But this wasn't, I, I would not consider this, I mean, this ruling was a slam dunk against Nichols saying, you know, come on, get with the program here. It clearly <laughs> is an official proceeding, but it is not to the broader mm-hmm. issue of whether or not this behavior constitutes a violation of 1512C2 and the whole idea of corrupt intent. I, I think the jury's still out. Well, the judges are still out on that. <laughs> yeah. Although I will say with corrupt intent that there is a footnote here that says, um, quote, the dissenting opinion says a defendant can act corruptly only if the benefit he intends to procure is a financial, professional, or exculpatory advantage. Uh, I am not so sure. And then case site, case site, case site. 
Besides, this case may involve a professional benefit. The defendant's conduct may have been an attempt to help Donald Trump unlawfully secure a professional advantage, the presidency. Like the clerkship that Samuel Vaughn corruptly sought hundreds of years ago, the presidency is a coveted profession, a professional position. True, the defendants were allegedly trying to secure the presidency for Trump and not themselves or their close associates, but the beneficiary of an unlawful benefit need not be the defendant or his friends. And if the argument in the dissent is that the the beneficiary of this uh, corrupt intent has to be the person themselves, then that's Donald Trump. You know, it's that's him. So I don't see how that would even be particularly an argument. Um, And, you know, that's spelled out here in that footnote. Um, And as we know, dissenting opinions don't make law. They don't do anything. They're just there for, you know, get me on the record as dissenting. Um, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I assume that if, if Jack Smith does bring obstruction, obstructing an official proceeding charges against Donald Trump, that there will be an appeal, uh, or motions to dismiss on certain grounds of, uh, ambiguity in the statute. And we will have to hear this again, regardless of this, but now Jack Smith can go into it. First of all, knowing what the court's thinking about corrupt intent. And second of all, with the, you know, not having that Judge Nichols weird dissenting opinion or, you know, ruling hanging out there, making it riper for appeal. Closing this loop, I think, is is, is very important. I think it will benefit Jack Smith more than it hurts him. But his job is still an uphill battle to prove corrupt intent. It's still hard. That's why I think, and Andy McCabe and I talk about this on the Jack podcast, he might go for fraud, wire fraud, money laundering. He might go for uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States, 371, something easier, something more open and shut than obstructing an official proceeding. Or he could blow us all away and go for seditious conspiracy. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, because I honestly, I didn't, I didn't think that any of the uh, rioters or the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys would be charged with seditious conspiracy. I thought they would go with obstructing an official proceeding because it seemed easier to prove. And then they blew me away with their seditious conspiracy charges and they got convictions. Yeah. You know, and it's certainly true. None of us know what the investigators have at this point. They don't know what, you know, notwithstanding Peter Navarro's fucking signal messages that he still has yet to turn over. We don't know what they have from signal. Oh, his proton mail stuff. His <laughs> proton, yeah, sorry, his proton mail, not a signal. But, you know, they, we, we have no idea what's been said or not said. But again, in, in my mind, this just, one of the things this does is just points to the horrible disservice of what Fox News did throughout this entire time yeah. period. Even though they knew it was BS, their constant pushing of the stolen election, their constant pushing of Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and everybody else talking about how this was a stolen election in Venezuela and Italian space satellites and everything else, knowing that it was BS, nonetheless, they put it out there into the sort of the, the public awareness. And so whether or not, you know, and I think one, some people actually did believe it. You know, they, they were taken in, they thought Fox is gospel and this is a news channel and it's the truth. But even if they didn't, it's paving the way to create doubt, right? If you bring any of these people in, and it's why Trump, part of the reason I'm, I'm convinced he's still saying this day it was a stolen election. Not that he believes it, but his defense is, is it necessitates him saying that. So if he can get in there, and again, the point is the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury, if they go down this route, that Trump actually had 
corrupt intent or any of these senior people who have been charged with it. And if any of these people can talk and point to like, well, look, you know, I just, I listened to the news. I listened to Fox News. You had all these attorneys on there saying that it was stolen. I really believe that it was stolen. I wasn't corrupt at all. I thought our democracy is in danger. Even if they're lying through their teeth when they say that. All you need is one juror to have a reasonable doubt in their head and that's enough to disrupt any sort of prosecution on this. So again, I, you know, we, I, I think, you know, everybody's angry at what Fox News has done, but I think the sort of the ripples and the permutations of just how far and how bad that behavior has impacted our democracy. I don't think we've we've really gotten our our head around the totality of how just how bad that was. And I think you know it's still unfolding. And I, I think it's it's by the time we get through this and look at it. You know, I, I think Rupert Murdoch is going to go down as, you know, one of the greatest villains in our nation's history. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and many of the January 6th defendants, their defense is, hey, the president and the news told me that this happened, that this yeah. was real. And that's why I was there. And I, I sometimes I feel like that's why we're not seeing, you know, when the Department of Justice asks for 88 months, they get 60 or uh, but, you know, there's usually a downward departure from from what the sentencing recommendations are from the Department of Justice, particularly in D.C. But who knows how this is going to turn out? Who knows what Jack Smith is going to do? It is very good news for the, the, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office who's prosecuting these boots on the ground rioters. They don't have to overturn any of their, you know, decisions. I, I think that the Supreme Court will find along the same lines uh, as the appellate court did. But we... We will see. And a lot of this stuff has to be decided before things can can keep moving forward or, or you know, to prevent them from moving backwards. So anyway, we got a long road to hoe. We always did. Uh, as you said, at Pete, you've, you've said, the attorney general has said, this is the biggest investigation in the history of the United States by far, far and away. And it's just going to, and when you involve people like White House aides and the former president, then you get into privilege concerns and you have to hammer those out before you can get there. And you know, a lot of people are like, if this was me, I'd be in jail by now. Well, yeah, because we don't have to go to court to decide whether or not you have privilege. So um, it's it's just a, it's, it's a, I understand the frustration and, and we just have to kind of watch these cases closely as they unfold. So, all right, we have a lot more news to get to, but we're going to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry, 
We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. So our friend Adam Klasfeld over at Law and Crime is reporting that Judge Kaplan, the judge presiding over the E. Jean Carroll case, has denied a joint motion to release the names of the jurors to the legal teams of both parties. Both sides filed this joint motion. Uh, and here's some of uh, what the ruling says here. From It's a short six-page ruling from Judge Kaplan. He's, he says, the court recently found, without objection by either party, as follows. If jurors' identities were disclosed, there would be strong likelihood of unwanted media attention to the jurors, influence attempts, and or of harassment or worse of jurors by supporters of Mr. Trump. Indeed, Mr. Trump himself has made critical statements on social media regarding the grand jury foreperson in Atlanta, Georgia, and the jury foreperson in the Roger Stone criminal case. And this properly may be viewed in the context of Mr. Trump's many statements regarding individual judges, the judiciary in general, and other public officials, as well as what reports have characterized as violent rhetoric by Mr. Trump, including before his presidency, unquote. So holy shit. Uh, if I had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter. Um, that is straight and to the point, man. That is word economy right there. Yeah. And, you know, and this is, again, two, one, this is the former president of the United States we're talking about. We're not talking about Pablo Escobar. We're not talking about, you know, a college Sheikh Sammy Muhammad. the Bull Gravano. We're, we're right. not talking about Sammy the Bull Gravano or John Gotti. We're, we're talking about a former president of the United States. And this isn't we're going to identify or not the jury to the public. This is whether or not they're going to disclose it to the legal team. And it's, <laughs> I, I can't get over this. I just, at some point, and it's so clear, and they're just sitting there, and it's not just like, well, we have a concern on this one issue. It's like, well, you did it, you did it this time, and this time, and this time, and this time, and this time. And it just goes on and on and on. And then you step back and you say, who is it behaving in this way? Do we have to have all these extra security? Measures for the jury and their safety and security. Oh, it's it's the former president and Republican frontrunner for the presidency in twenty twenty four. I I just I I can't. I, I should be I guess dull to it. I'm still not. I don't know that I ever will be. But it just makes my blood boil. Having I mean I can't tell you over the course of twenty years. Like I can count on one hand, not even one hand, half on one hand. The number of times that not just me, but I knew anybody that I was working with in the field office who had a trial where this sort of security measures were called for. It just doesn't happen. It's appalling. 
That's all I can say. Something I'm, I think that's interesting that didn't come up in this ruling that I personally would have brought up if I were a judge is, is not only the, the danger of giving Trump's attorneys the names of these people, um, but, you know, for hara- you know, but to avoid harassment, but also to, he, he briefly mentions like sort of coercion, right? And, and we saw that with Cassie Hutchinson's lawyer, Passantino. Um, where and and we we know a great number, if not all, of Trump's lawyers and lawyers for other witnesses are in fact paid for by the Save America PAC, which is being investigated, by the way. Uh, and those vendor payments are being investigated. But to say, oh, it's we're just giving it to the lawyers. The lawyers are cool. Uh, there's nothing in here about all of the sanctions that Trump's lawyers have faced, disbarment proceedings, suspensions of legal licenses, uh, criminal investigations, you know, when we get to like Sidney Powell and, and, and that whole crack and strike force group, and coercion and, and suborning of perjury, potentially, in like the Hutchinson case from Trump paid attorneys. So I, I would have brought all that up to say it's, you know, it's not that I don't trust Robbie Kaplan over here on E. Jean's side, but I can't give it to one and not the other. So because of these attorneys and the the track record of Trump's legal attorney, you know, legal assistance, I can't give it to anybody. That's what, what it feels like. And he doesn't explicitly say that. He goes on to say here, the likelihood of such difficulty since the court made those findings has only increased. That is so in view of Mr. Trump's public statements characterized by the media attacks against the New York state judge, that's Judge Juan Mershon, presiding over the recently filed New York state criminal case against Mr. Trump and the threats reportedly then made, presumably by Trump supporters, against that judge and members of his family. And then then that takes you to... Uh, my favorite footnote of this, which you you <laughs> sent to me, uh, talk about talk a little bit about that footnote. Yeah, they start listing out all the reasons why. So it's not you know they say this is so in view. Mr. Trump's public statements characterized by the media's attacks, which you just said, against the New York state judge presiding over the recently filed New York state criminal case against Mr. Trump. And then, you know, continuing on a little bit, and then they start and list it out. E.g., Ewan Palmer, Trump accused a threatening judge hours after incite violence warning. Newsweek, April 5th, 2023. What, five days ago, right? Not even, you know, just starting it out. We don't have to go back in time last month. We don't have to go back in time last year. Five days ago, here's an article with a site to New York. Isaac Stanley Becker and Jackie Alimany judge asked Trump not to incite violence amid volley of online attacks. The Washington Post updated again, April 4th, 2023, less than a week ago with a site. Olivia Land, Trump Jr. shares article with photo of judge's daughter, who allegedly worked on Biden campaign. New York Post, April 5th, 2023. <laughs> Josh Marcus Judge warns Trump about social media posts as legal team defends baseball bat picture. <laughs> the Independent, April 4th, 2023. And then finally, Rebecca Rosenberg, New York judge presiding over Donald Trump criminal case, gets death threats. Fox News, April 6, 2023. Ah, I guess there's one more. Jonathan Deanst, Rebecca Shabad, Ben Kamazar, and Laura Jarrett. Trump judge and his family receive threats after New York arrest. NBC News, updated April 5th, 2023. And so here you have, what is that, four, this is The five, footnote takes up the whole page. Five, it, 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 it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like a effing one page long Carter Page FISA footnote saying, we know the Steele dossier is political oppo research. But it's, you have 
four or five different events of threatening behavior, which is can only be viewed as attempting to upset and derail the sort of objective process of the judicial proceedings, all within the past week. We don't have to go back to February. We don't have to go back to anything Michael Cohen's attorneys told him. We don't have to go back to anything Flynn's attorneys told him. We don't, we don't have, have to go, go back, back to the January 6th. We don't have to go back to last month. <laughs> we can sit there last week and come up with five different things that were done to threaten the court, to threaten witnesses, to threaten the attorneys working on the case. And, you know, and and good good for the judge just putting it all out there. One yeah. after the other after the other. And different outlets, right? Fox News, CNN, NBC, just across the board, you know, pick it, the independent, whoever you want. It's not just one outlet. It, it, yeah. It's, again, coming from the former president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the judge says, so it is not speculation to conclude, as I do, that at least some members of the jury in this case, if told their identities would be confidential from everyone but the lawyers for, let alone the legal teams of these parties, likely would not feel confidence that their identities would remain known only to the lawyers or legal team. That's him basically spelling out, none of, no one's going to be safe with their names handed over to judges or Trump's lawyers because they won't remain secret. That's the, that's the worry. Second, providing prospective jurors' names to counsel would not materially aid and might even hinder the impaneling of a fair jury. Uh, the parties have failed to explain the usefulness, if any, of access to prospective jurors' names, despite the careful and searching voir dire examination into which the person will be subject. And third, counsel on both sides uh, seem to be laboring under the misunderstanding that they would have a list of prospective jurors for this case and could investigate the prospective jurors or speculate as to their ethnic backgrounds, religions, and various other appropriate and inappropriate subjects, but for the anonymous jury order. But they're mistaken. And so for the foregoing reasons, the party's request that each party's legal team be granted access to the names of prospective jurors is denied. So fully denied. It's like, a, it's, it, you feel like the judge is like, if it were just you, Eugene, I'd let your lawyer see it. <laughs> you know, but I can't give it to one and not the other. He doesn't say that, but that's the implication here because there's in no, not one single mention of Robbie Kaplan's uh, statements uh, in the public about, you know, hindering judicial proceedings. Yeah. And the other thing that this does is, I mean, it shows a little bit of solidarity within the the various courts in New York. I mean, you've got, you know, this is Judge Kaplan, which is not the uh, judge who is handling the criminal state case against Trump. But you have a little bit of, I mean, there's a there's a unity here of kind of saying like, look, we, we're in New York. We're the, <laughs> the Supreme Court in New York, and we are going to handle our affairs in a certain manner. We are going to not let this turn into a circus. This is something that as other cases come along that I think it builds a sort of consensus amongst the bench that certain behaviors are not going to be tolerated and it makes it easier to sort of like maintain control and, and keep people safe. And, you know, again, I, I'm just appalled that it's necessary, but I do think it has a positive effect on other courts and other proceedings and other cases relating to Trump that may be coming down the line in the future. So I, I just, I've never seen anything. I don't think none of us have seen anything like this, but it's soon. I mean, this is coming down the pike, Allison. This isn't, I mean, what, two April weeks April 25th. But, yeah. April yeah. 25th uh, begins the uh, jury selection, I believe, for this case. And April 13th, 
we begin the Fox Dominion uh, lawsuit. <laughs> and right smack dab in the middle, Jim Jordan's going to take a field trip. And we're going to talk about that as soon as we get back from, uh, from this break. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. This this fucking clown. <laughs> Jim, Jim Jordan has his next ridiculous stunt planned out. He's going to go up you, to dude. New York City and hold a field hearing in New York City to cover crime there, even though the crime rate in his own district is three times higher than it is in New York City. Just today, his, his crazy clown committee released a press statement. The House Judiciary Committee will hold a field hearing Monday, April 17th at 9 a.m. Eastern at the Javits Federal Building in New York City. The hearing, entitled Victims of Violent Crime in Manhattan, We'll examine how Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's pro-crime anti-victim policies have led to an increase in violent crime and a dangerous community for New York City residents. Now, not, not you know, nobody's, nobody's fooled. Bragg turned around and issued a, a response this afternoon. Quote, don't be fooled. The House GOP is coming to the safest big city in America for a political stunt. This hearing won't engage in actual efforts to increase public safety, such as supporting national gun legislation and shutting down the iron pipeline. The Manhattan DA's office welcomes public safety conversations. 
We have them every day with our local, state, and federal law enforcement partners. In fact, we'll start. Just released NYPD data shows shootings and homicides are down in New York City for the first quarter of this year, with progress in Manhattan helping drive the overall citywide decrease. Virtually every major crime category is lower in Manhattan than it was last year. Murders are down 14%. Shootings are down 17%. Burglaries are down 21%. And robberies are down 8%. In D.A. Bragg's first year in office, New York City had one of the lowest murder rates of major cities in the United States at 5.2%. Nearly three times lower than Columbus, Ohio, which clocks in at 15.4%. I, I added the clocks in. That was not T. A. Bragg's statement. But <laughs> That's okay. He continues, if Chairman Jordan truly cared about public safety, he could take a short drive to Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Akron, or Toledo in his home state. Instead of using taxpayer dollars to travel hundreds of miles out of his way. You know, and, and like everything else, Allison, this is just like Jim Jordan is such a clown. He gets up there ready to put on some display And he hasn't even arrived at that hearing, and he's already falling on his face with the facts. And, you know, this is interesting. This is a a different um, business insider pulled data from both the Columbus Dispatch and Wall Street Journal. And here's a different way to think about the the data that Bragg was alluding to in his statement. So Columbus, Ohio, has a population of about 1.7 million people, and it closed out 22 with 140 murders. And this is according to the Columbus Dispatch. And that um, even or equates out to 8.2 murders per 100,000 citizens. Now, on the other hand, according to the Wall Street Journal, New York City, with a population of 18.9 million people, closed out 2022 with 433 murders, which translates to a murder rate of 2.3 murders per 100,000 citizens. So again, the, the murder rate in Columbus, Ohio, is almost four times higher that of New York City. But this clown wants to go up to the Javits Federal Center of all places. I don't, I mean, I don't, I assume they're, I, I don't know how as a congressman he gets space there. I don't know if this is the kind of thing where you have a meeting and you can say, well, I want space to hold a hearing. It's not, I don't think, going to be in a courtroom. I'm curious to see what the actual venue looks like. But it's, it's clearly not only a political stunt, but all of the data behind what he's doing points to a massive crime problem in Ohio, compared to that that you're going to find in New York City. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, it went so great for Marge, you know, when she ran up there for for Trump's uh, arraignment. You know, I'm, I'm certain, you know, Jim Jordan will enjoy a, a, a warm Manhattan welcome as well. So I, and these, these knuckleheads, man, I don't know. I, I... Yeah, that and we know that, that Donald Trump is coordinating with uh, Jim Jordan and, and the House Republicans to just act as sort of a congressional defense team. Uh, against his crimes. The fact that this happened smack dab in between the beginning of the Fox News lawsuit and the, right the, a week before E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit starts, or, you know, trial starts, uh, I think is indicative of what, you know, Donald and the uh, Jim Jordan and the other members of the House GOP are trying to do here. And they keep failing at every turn. I mean, you know, when we talk to uh, Rep. Dan Goldman, about the whistleblowers, the dozens and dozens and hundreds of whistleblowers that were coming forward from the FBI, from the alphabet soup up there in the Beltway, 
and they got three and interviewed them and totally eviscerated them. And now no more discussions yeah, about the whistleblowers. Off, off into the wind. Right? Bye. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it, it, these things, it, then when he brings in, I can't remember if it was him or Comer. They're all melting together in my head. It's just like one giant rat king. Uh, brings in a couple of senators to testify and then dismisses them before they can even be asked questions by the Democrats. Uh, this kind of one-sided thing. And then they turn around and, of course, every every accusation is a confession, accuse the Democrats of kangaroo hearings and, you know, be all bullshit, you know, farcical shows of weaponization when it is they themselves that that, that are doing the, the weaponizing and it is they themselves who are just holding these absolutely bananas hearings that, again, are completely picked apart and eviscerated by the Democrats on the committee. No wonder Matt Gates is calling to remove the Democrats from these particular committees. Yeah. And, and again, I don't think you know the party is Donald Trump, or the, the 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 audience is Donald Trump. The audience is the Fox News and OAN listeners. But all this expenditure of taxpayer resources to fly all these folks up there to get the space to give them per diem to, you know, put them up at hotels, is not coming at any benefit. I mean, you know, the, the Jim Jordan's going up there, but guess what? So is Stacey Plaskett. So is Dan Goldman. So are all these like really smart, articulate investigators and former prosecutors who are going to be able to sit there and get their five minutes as part of these hearings. So it's not, it's not, I predict, I'm put on my little, you know, soothsayer sort of uh, uh, hat. It's not going to go well for Jim Jordan. He is not going to have compelling testimony. He is going to look like an idiot. He is going to look like a wildly politicized buffoon. He's going to look exactly like he's looked for the past several months. But Although the, his not warm welcome in New York City is something that he will use to his benefit. Yeah, to, yeah of to, course. To just please like, the yeah, – Just like Marjorie Mar was talking Mar about – right, right. She went on whatever that was, Hannity or, or, or Tucker and was talking about just Gotham City and how, you know – And again, <laughs> she can go there and talk shit about New York City all she wants, but be goddamned if anybody on the left dares disparage – any small town in the South, that would be horrible. That would be uncalled for. That would be just totally inappropriate. So this this sort of asymmetrical, you know, she can sit there and and, and punch at New York City and, you know, in just the, the most misleading, inaccurate terms she wants. And there's, you know, nothing other than, well, it's MTG being MTG. But you'd never hear the the converse or inverse or opposite of no, that. No, and they just, aren't trying to win hearts and minds in New York City. They're trying to show their constituents what bad, terrible people, uh, you know, these radical leftists are in these anarchist cities that, uh, you know, want to burn down police buildings and, you know, violently insurrect things, you know, whatever the fucking thing they're going to say is. Uh, and that's that's their whole goal. And they they will achieve that goal, um, not you know, to get talking points and videos. If if he actually wanted to help anybody and go to his own district and talk about lowering crime rates, that's not going to give him what he wants. That's going to give him the opposite of, of what he wants. So of course he's not going to uh, engage in any kind of actual helpful, uh, you know, <laughs> field field hearings uh, that that would actually help his constituents. No, no, no. That's not. It's not about that. It's about retaining minority rule. And uh, and scaring, frankly, scaring their voters, making their voters scared of Democrats 
so that they continue to vote for Republicans. That's, I mean, that's the long and short of it. Yeah, and depending on how far he goes, I mean, this does potentially potentially provide ammunition for either the the court or Bragg in his office to sit there and say, "Hey, look, you know, this is as you pointed out, this is coordinated with Trump. This is information that's designed to not necessarily, you know, inflame the population in New York City, but it's certainly inflaming the population of the rest of the United States, and it is creating an atmosphere of, you know, potential violence. It is creating an atmosphere of intimidation, and to the extent it's being done in coordination or, you know, with some back and forth to Trump, this is the defendant doing this. This is the criminal defendant launching a, you know, a congressional delegation to go to the place of the upcoming trial and to try and rile people up and influence the ability to have a, you know, a fair, objective, safe uh, criminal proceeding. So, I, you know, Jordan's got to be careful, I think, because he thinks, you know, again, he's I, I, not at all the, the the brightest man. I mean, he may be politically savvy, but I think there's a very real potential that, you know, he gets carried away and starts, you know, doing his fast talking carnival barker sort of shtick and all of a sudden starts saying things either during the hearing or later on that night with Hannity or Tucker, whoever it is, that all of a sudden gets them sideways with the district attorney's office, with the court. So again, the whole thing is a clown show. Will we'll, I, I don't have a lot of expectation that they're going to be able to prudently control themselves and how that turns out for them. Let's, let's see. Yeah. And also there's a couple other considerations too. Is this criminal? like obstructing justice and right. and and you have the speech or debate clause but does that protect this kind of uh behavior and that's something that can, can is I'm sure is being thought about uh within the Department of Justice in certain jurisdictions but also something else that Trump could achieve here we know already that he that the pretrial motions in the Manhattan DA's case are going to be plentiful and if he wants to file for change of venue, which I'm sure he does, and I'm sure he will, he might use some of this footage of rabid New Yorkers uh, going after MTG or going after Jim Jordan, you know, protesting or showing how much New Yorkers don't like this kind of political weaponization in their town. He could use that and enter it as evidence for not being able to get a fair trial in Manhattan. Uh, and so not only potentially tainting jury pools, but also to be used as as evidence in a motion to change the venue to Staten Island, for example. Yeah, I'm not too I mean, given what I've read about the 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 prospect and the the viability of motions to change venue within the New York state system, I think that's pretty unlikely. And, you know, the funny thing was when Marjorie Taylor Greene went up there, they they were interviewing somebody, somebody went out and they were, she got whistled down when she tried to make a public statement. Everybody had these whistles and they tracked down the person giving them out. And it was just like Trump supporters like, ah, oh, maybe it wasn't, wasn't very thought through what he was doing. But you had a Trump supporter passing out all these whistles to people, which then turned around to drown out uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I, yeah, they could, there, there are a lot of sort of unanticipated. I'm not saying it'll be successful. I'm just saying that's probably a goal. Yeah, for sure. And the the thing is like none of us know because again, this isn't this doesn't typically happen. And so how this sort of permu the, the permutations coming out from this are so hard to predict and understand just because this is so novel. It, it's really potentially I think very challenging to the the justice system in general and to you know try and sit there and say, "Oh, this is going to accrue this way to one side or this way to the other side, I think it's really hard to predict just because we haven't seen anything like it before. 
Yep, very true. All of it's pretty unprecedented, as they say. All right, that is our episode this week. Uh, tune in over the weekend. We'll have a, a, a quick um, bonus episode for patrons. Again, if you want to be a patron, that's patreon.com slash aisle45pod, uh, which is aisle four five pod And uh, I look forward to it. And then also start looking for some information about a meet and greet. Uh, that we're going to do uh, over up in D.C. Uh, at the end yeah. of April. We are, we are, I'm coordinating with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, and uh, <laughs> because, uh, whoa, the White House Correspondents Association accepted me as a member. So uh, I'll be nice. in D.C. That nice. time. So look for emails. Uh, if your emails about, you know, about um, Patreon stuff go into your junk, you might want to keep an eye on that for information on a meetup. So... That's all I have. Uh, Pete, any final thoughts before we sign off? No. Thanks to everybody for your support. Thanks to all the new subscribers. Uh, it is a huge uh, help for putting this together and just, uh, you know, honored and humbled by all the folks who are tuning in and, and, and continue to tune in. So thank you all. Yeah. Maybe one day we could get that government-funded label on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Just need one small, one small grant. For our Twitter <laughs> account. I used to work, we're both ex-government employees, so I mean, that could qualify under Elon's cruel tutelage, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, thank you so much, everybody. We'll be back next week. This has been Clean Up on L45. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. See you next week. With editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. 
This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.